Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the interim conservative leader accuses the Liberals of trying to cling to power by making a deal with the NDP. One has to wonder, when did these talks start? What kind of agreements were made? What was the quid pro quo that was given? These are important questions that go to the very heart of our democracy. Democracy and openness has been replaced by backroom deals. Jagmeet Singh defends his party's decision to support the Liberals. This is always something that I wanted to do. I always wanted to get help to people. I always wanted to use the, the parliament as previous New Democrat leaders have used parliament, use their power to get help for people. Tommy Douglas uses power to bring in Medicare. Jack Layton uses power in a minority government to bring in affordable housing. And we are using our power now to take uh, a bold step forward on dental care, on pharmacare, and help to people. And the Prime Minister arrives in Brussels for an emergency meeting to plan NATO's next steps to deal with the crisis in Ukraine. Canada, alongside our democratic partners, is helping Ukraine defend itself against authoritarianism. It's the right and necessary thing to do. It's Wednesday, March 23rd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster, Dan Legere. Dan, good morning. Hi, Mark. So let's talk about the ingredients of this deal that has been struck between the Liberals and the NDP. It's called a confidence and supply agreement. And uh, I'll point out right off the top that We'll talk in a moment about the reaction to it, but it's worth noting that it, it, while it, it's suggesting that we're not going to have an election and that the parties are going to work together to sustain the government for the next three years, anything can happen in two years, in two months, in two weeks. Uh, so it's not necessarily forever. I'll also add that this is the way minority parliaments sometimes work, so there's nothing that's going against the rules. But we'll get to all of that when we talk about the reaction to it. First of all, what's in the agreement? One of the big things that jumps out, obviously, is the idea of of some type of dental program for Canadians. But what do you see here? Well, I think broadly speaking, Mark, what you're seeing here is an acknowledgement that uh, that more than 50 percent of the Canadian electorate voted for progressive parties. Uh, you know, writ large, the Liberals and the NDP are the prominent parties of the center left in Canada. And more than 50 percent, if you add up what they both got in the last election, um, adds up to that. And, and of course, there are progressive voters in other parties as well, including the Greens and prominently the Bloc uh, Québécois. So, you know, this is reflective of a not firm consensus, but elements of a consensus. And some of those things I think you're going to see, I mean, you know, notably it's on this dental plan. I mean, um, right now, millions of Canadians, Mark, are uncovered by dental insurance. Unless your your employer has a darn good program, um, you're likely to have no coverage at all or little coverage. Um, so that's obviously a prominent one. And that's going to be a massive vote getter, I think, for um, the Liberals and the NDP if they're able to bring this through. Um, so that'll be kind of, I think, the headline story uh, storyline going ahead over the next while. But you're going to see other things, too, like potentially uh, more or higher taxes on big banks and insurance companies, telecom providers, uh, you know, the sort of fat corporate cows that are frequent targets of political darts and uh, who are also 
the targets of a lot of popular complaints among people. Um, you know, I think you're going to see moves, for instance, on housing, steps taken to uh, reduce speculation that is driving up the hot cost of uh, home ownership and, and rental affordability right across Canada. Um, you know, there may be some steps toward a pharmacare uh, program, finally, which is another area where Canadians, in the wake of a two-year and more pandemic, uh, sense their vulnerability, you know. So I think, you know, across a broad spectrum of, of um, potential progressive, you know, to use that term, progressive uh, endeavors, that you're going to see some of those get pushed forward, and there will actually be enough voting me- uh, muscle in Parliament now to see some of them through. Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, this reflects how a lot of Canadians voted in the last election. There are people already reacting, including the Conservatives, obviously, who are on the outside looking in at this deal uh, and probably would like there to be an election sooner than three years from now. Um, they're they're saying this is not what Canadians voted for. Um, in a way, it is. I, I see the, the logic on some level of what they're saying, but I think it can be argued that this is what Canadians voted for in the sense that on any given day, two parties can agree or any group of MPs, regardless of what parties they belong to, can agree that, hey, we're going to we're going to vote together on something to get an agenda across. In fact, that's exactly how our parliament is designed to work. So whether that's happening in kind of case by case or budget by budget or month by month, year by year or in a three year deal, this is how things work in a minority parliament. Right. Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, I think really, Mark, and I've said this on the show before, I think Canadians want their parties to put aside some of the mindless partisan bickering that juvenile baloney that goes on day to day to day in the House of Commons and in more broadly speaking throughout our politics and put aside some of that and get things done that people want done. And, you know, I don't think there's anything holy or or sacred about a minority government trying to make deals on every last single thing that comes up before the House of Commons, continually in a state of apprehended death, continually in a state of an election could be called tomorrow, a $600 million election. I mean, the Conservatives are, are complaining about the stability that this is bringing to the Liberal government. And they were the ones who were complaining a few months ago about Trudeau calling a um, an election and costing the taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars to no net effect. Well, now there has been a net effect. And uh, I mean, no one's going to expect the conservatives to like it. But at the same time, they can't really have it both ways, even if they're only in opposition. So, you know, uh, this it does reflect a broad uh, subtle consensus, I think, among Canadian voters. And it does, I think, reflect a lot of the concerns that people have uh, with the way government and politics has operated in this country. And I thought it was interesting yesterday, Dan, that uh, somebody asked NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, well, if, if dental care happens and if some of these other things on your agenda get implemented, aren't the Liberals going to take credit for that in the next election? And won't that be bad for the NDP? And and his response was, well, our job is to get some things done. And if they happen, that's what matters, not whether 
uh, the, not not who gains politically from it, uh, because Canadians gain if there are better policies. And some people may not agree with the policies he's talking about, but but uh, that's that's kind of an interesting thing to say in a time like this when everything is viewed through the lens of who's winning and who's losing politically. Exactly, and and I think it's that last element that that people are really tired of. They're they're sick and tired of this constant bickering, name calling, and uh, juvenile behavior on the on that part of politicians, and and it, also the media. Mark, I mean, we've got to take our own responsibility in this that we've abetted a lot of this kind of name calling silliness that's gone on for years and years and years. And that now might be somewhat put aside, at least on the part of, of two parties. So uh, I think if the this new arrangement um, between the Liberals and the NDP is smart, they'll reach out towards Quebec voters as well to make sure that people who voted for the Bloc Québécois can see some value in, in the government that's running things in Ottawa. Um, and, and I think they will. And I, I think there will be a real... Um, you know, sincere effort to 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 do that. They also, I think, because the NDP has some MPs out west, I think this could raise perhaps the consciousness of some of the issues that are in play in Western Canada that the Liberals are notorious for in terms of having a massive blind spot and not really being able to understand what's going on in the West. So there are some opportunities here. Now, I will say also, Mark, you know, while I, I think this is a good idea overall in Canadian politics, I think this is a massive challenge to Prime Minister Trudeau to be mature, show some leadership, uh, stick to his guns, and and actually uh, manage this in a way that um, that I think will will attract some political support. Um, if they're going to go around trying to be you know pushing everyone around just because they perceive they have a majority again or or something like that, then this whole thing is going to fall down like a house of cards. And uh, and just be 10 times worse. So, you know, there's some real challenges there. But I think one of the biggest challenges of all is for the prime minister himself. Mm. Very interesting. And again, I think we can point out that just because the parties are saying right now that this is going to last for a certain period of time doesn't mean it will. Everybody in politics is entitled to change their mind and a deal only lasts until it doesn't. Um, So we'll see what happens on that. Now, the prime minister is on his way to Brussels for this NATO uh, summit that is about the Ukraine. Uh, let's talk about that, Dan. What do you expect to come from that? Um, and and what options are still available to NATO leaders as the crisis continues? Well, um, you know, that's the $64 bazillion question, isn't it, Mark? Uh, you know, what can NATO do? Uh, you know, right now it's so hard to understand what to believe. Uh, I did see something from a senior Russian official today saying that um, the Russians wouldn't use, for instance, nuclear weapons unless the you know ex- existence of Russia were to be threatened somehow, I suppose, by, by NATO nuclear weapons. Oh, maybe, the, maybe that question could be taken off the table. I mean, that's the type of question that has to be answered at the level of heads of government of NATO and can't be answered in the columns of our newspapers or in uh, on Twitter. You know, so, uh, you know, it is worth remembering as well, Mark, that NATO never forswore the first use of nuclear weapons. 
this has always been, I mean, we talk a lot about the Russians and their nukes and Putin's crazy and he's got his finger on the button, blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, take that for what it's worth. But NATO has always reserved for itself the first use option of nuclear weapons. That is what kept the Soviets on the other side of their uh, borders for so long. So, you know, all of these things are, you know, it's in the interest of all the NATO countries to de-escalate this. It's in the interest of all of NATO, Europe, and the world to stop the war and stop the violence in Ukraine. Um, there, there is tremendous uh, solidarity, I think, among the NATO leaders. There's no Donald Trump around sowing dissent and confusion. Um, and so I think, it, you know, that is the most important factor in NATO um, is the solidarity of the coalition. And so uh, leaders have to meet. They have to signal where they're going to take things. They have to get their own governments and their own people uh, walking along that same path to support Ukraine and to end this war, which is just causing so much needless damage to the uh, to the people of Ukraine. All right. We'll see what comes of that summit tomorrow. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Mark. That's longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. They've been talking. They've had secret deals they weren't telling anyone about. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, Lori Turnbull argues the liberal NDP deal is about politics, not policy, for both sides. Turnbull writes, This deal does not signal a substantive shift in the relationship between the liberals and the NDP, but is instead an explicit acknowledgement of their pre-existing partnership, which was stable to begin with. There is little space between them on many matters of policy, and given their own desire to avoid an early election, the NDP seems more than happy to prop up the Trudeau government for as long as they need. The Conservatives are the real targets of this deal. It takes the wind out of the sails of their ongoing leadership contest, their third since 2015. In the Ottawa Citizen, Andrew McDougall argues the NDP will feel all of the pain and none of the gain. He writes, Yes, the NDP is broke. Yes, it is devoid of ideas. But the answer to those problems isn't to hive off your few priorities to someone else and watch them take credit for making them happen. There are some who will argue the agreement buys the NDP the time it needs to regroup and refinance. But this gets it exactly backward. To regroup and refinance, the NDP needs to offer something different from the Liberals, not a plan to merge into more of the same. Now is the time to show ambition, not seed control. In the Toronto Star, Susan Delacourt argues the NDP liberal deal shows you shouldn't count Justin Trudeau out. Delacourt writes, Several elements of the liberal NDP arrangement have an opportunity to settle into permanent fixtures of governance in Canada, whether that's the child care funding arrangements with the provinces or the emerging program for dental care. Justin Trudeau has a chance to make a permanent legacy on the progressive front with Jagmeet Singh's help. Whether one is a fan or foe of the current Prime Minister, the deal is evidence once again that it's a mistake to count Trudeau out. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister is in Brussels for an emergency NATO meeting. Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne and Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra will speak about the future of the automotive sector in Windsor, Ontario. 
In Ottawa, Tourism Minister Randy Boissonneau and Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault will hold a news conference regarding the green bond issuance. And Employment Minister Carla Qualtrough and Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos will announce new investments to address labor shortages in the healthcare sector. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, March 23rd. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.